Welcome to the Reunion Church Podcast. We're a community following Jesus, seeking the good of our city. We hope today's teaching is both challenging and encouraging. If we could be a resource to you on your spiritual journey, don't hesitate to reach out via our website at reunionnyc.com. Today's teaching text comes from John 20, verses 19 to 29. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is the word of the Lord. Welcome, everyone. How are we doing? Happy Easter. Yes, we are here. Um, my name is Russell. I'm the pastor for our community, and i um, really glad that you're here today. It's good to see your faces. Uh, one of the oldest traditions in the Christian church is an Easter greeting. And I say Christ is risen, and you say Christ is risen indeed. We should definitely try this together. He is risen. Oh, look at this, like, this is amazing. Don't even, don't even need to work hard at it. Sorry, I'm doing a little rearranging here. All right, very good. Let's pray as we begin today. Father, I love you and uh, believe that you are in our midst by your spirit. And uh, Lord, we come from a lot of different places today. We come from a lot of different stories Um, And we believe that you're telling a story through your son, Jesus. And so I pray that um, today would be a small invitation to join into that story, that we understand that the resurrection actually meets us. And so, God, I pray that as we uh, look at this uh, text today, that we would bring all of ourselves here, our doubts, our fears, our longings, whatever it is, God, would you allow us to bring it into this place, knowing that you are good and we are safe in your presence. And so we love you, and I pray, too, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. Amen. When was the last time that you felt a sense of wonder and awe? When is the last time you felt a sense of wonder and awe? And the word that I want to hone in on here is the word enchantment. Enchantment. When is the last time you felt a sense of wonder and awe where the future wasn't bleak, but it was open-ended and hopeful? Uh, for me, it was around this time. Uh, here's a photo of uh, my daughter. Um, 
uh, April 6th, 2020, um, you won't catch her yellow rain jacket or her black Doc Martens in the black and white photo, but she's a vibe. Like, she knows what she's doing. She's a whole vibe in and of herself. And you may think about this uh, date and think back, like, Russell, April 6th, 2020, that's like, that's lockdown, right? Rose is like super anti-mask, anti-lockdown, and so she's crazy like that. No, I'm kidding. But literally, this was a season of, you know, darkness and confusion and anxiety. But as I reflect deeper, it was actually an opportunity for me as a dad, as my daughter was learning to walk and learning to run, it was a season for me to see wonder, for me to see um, awe through the eyes of someone else, right? And she would push her little baby stroller uh, through this slab at 20th and 2nd, and she would have no rain boots, she would fall, she would soak her pants, and she would come home soaking wet. But even in the midst of the darkness of this season, I had a sense of enchantment. And maybe, maybe even that's why, is everything around me seems so bleak, but I got to see an experience through somebody else's eyes, and it gave me a sense of enchantment. When was the last time you felt a sense of wonder and awe? And I think what's helpful about this word enchantment is like um, it helps us see things fresh, especially when you think about an idea like the resurrection. And maybe you come here today with some barriers toward the idea or you're trying to understand exactly what that looks like in a literal sense. But to come and approach this story today enchanted with a level of wonder, to be animated by wonder. Maybe you think about the last time you were with that special person and you think, ah, oh, it was an enchanting moment. Or maybe an opportunity to get out of the city and get out into nature and it was a time of enchantment. Maybe it was a time where you wronged someone, you apologized to them, asked them for forgiveness, and they extended grace towards you. That can be a moment of enchantment, wonder, coming to life again. Um, I was thinking uh, this morning about how uh, for some of you in the room, you hear the word enchantment and like, it is what you do. Like you, it just comes natural. Like you wake up naturally at 6.45 a.m. and you look at the, the day anew and you say, there's new purpose for today. And like you eat your overnight oats that you set out the night before and you pop up the cold brew and you just smile because it's a new day, right? My hatred for you is only jealousy. I promise. All right. But I just speak for myself here. I approach a story like this naturally, and I'm actually prone to cynicism. Like, I'm actually prone to skepticism. And one of my fears in my own life is with the, the darkness and the tragedy of our world that I would actually become numb to it. Like, that, I, that, I, that it would just not hit me. It, nothing would be really exciting anymore. My sense of wonder and softness and excitement is just gone. Even, even living in the city that just seems to, like, peel off the veneer of joy from us. This desire to make it, and then all of a sudden we realize, wow, it's harder than I thought, right? And it's tiring. And so today, this is what I actually want to do, is I want to, like, tap into that side of you. Like, I want to poke you a little bit into that side of enchantment and wonder. Where is that in you? Is it from a past experience? What's that thing that makes you sort of come alive and tick and care? Because I, for one, have a sneaking suspicion that our world is, let's say, charged by a sort of divine yearning. There's something within us that just says there's more to this. There's more. There's something bigger. There's something that I can't quite solve that I have to 
figure out, regardless of what you believe. And I think that's what's really important is how do we tap into that renewed sense of wonder where we'd say there has to be more, a bigger thread weaving humanity together. And this is actually the claim of the resurrection story. In the book of Luke, um, a group of women come to the tomb. Jesus has been crucified and they come on Sunday morning and it says this in Luke chapter 24. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day, rise. And so this is the story that we're joining today. Followers of Jesus for almost 2,000 years have believed that Jesus Christ of Nazareth was physically and literally killed, crucified, a historic event, a date on the calendar, and that he was in the grave from Friday until Sunday morning where he rose triumphantly. God, the creator, subjecting himself to the pains of humanity. God, the creator, writing himself into human history um, in a physical, tangible, bodily way. And what's important um, to understand about when we read any of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, is we're not just reading dry history, even though um, sometimes you read it and you're like, well, there was nothing in that for me. One of the things that we actually need to acknowledge when we're reading the Scriptures is we're actually capturing eyewitness testimony. And so you're getting little uh, details. And this is why it's important to actually read the scriptures for yourself, but you're getting little nuggets of information and wisdom along the way. Um, In the book of John in particular, uh, you get little details like the time of day. Like, why do I care what time it is? That's what they're telling you the time of day. You're getting weather updates. You're getting who's present. And John is a really funny one in particular. He writes himself time and time again into the narrative. And you know, he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. You're like, how about that when you write a story? Just put yourself in like that. Or look at this in John chapter 20. We just read this. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple, John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. What did he say? He said, we had a foot race to the tomb, and I definitely beat Peter. Like, what? Why would you include this? He's like, I made it first. And what we're getting is eyewitness testimony. And so when you read this story, you're getting climax in the crucifixion, and then you're getting moments of resolution in the, in the resurrection. And here's the invitation over and over and over and over again in the book of John. Believe. This is what I want you to do. I want you to believe. Invited into enchantment, right? How do we begin to understand this story? And to be honest, I don't know how you found yourself in a dance studio this morning, um, but maybe you find yourself desiring this, right? Enchantment, to be renewed again, searching. Regardless of what that is, I hope today that you find, um, you see that you're in good company when you come to this story. And so here's how the resurrection meets us. Verse 19 begins like this. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And so Jesus comes to Mary Magdalene, and then all of a sudden in our passage, he just sort of appears through this locked door. It says that the disciples were afraid for fear of the Jews. Um, Some translations say uh, that they were afraid from the Jewish leaders. But really what they're afraid of is they're afraid of meeting the same fate as Jesus, right? They're afraid of being killed just like Jesus 
was. It's Sunday, right? Jesus dies on Friday. It's a quiet Saturday. No resurrection. He's dead. And then Sunday. And the disciples are hiding. They're like, I don't want to die like Jesus. I don't, I don't want that same fate. And for them, what they're coming to is this. The dream is dead. The dream is dead. We were hanging out with this guy who promised us political and religious hope and revolution, but the dream is dead. And here's where the resurrection meets Jesus's first followers. It meets them in fear and in hiding. In fear and in hiding. Jesus post-resurrection is seeking out his disciples who are hiding out. The doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. I'm just going to be honest. I love the humanity of this. Like, they're afraid for their lives, and so they're hiding. And essentially what they're saying is, is it didn't work out. Like, we're done. It didn't, it didn't work out. The show, the show is over. I'm going to go back home. And then it got me thinking this week about, what about a modern-day sort of reaction to the resurrection? Like, how, how would we respond? Like, what, what would that even look like? What if Jesus showed up in our midst? And I kept thinking about the ways in which I speak for myself, so consumed, so indulged, so figuring it out myself that I feel like if Jesus showed up in my midst, one of my fears is that I would just miss it altogether, that I wouldn't be enchanted, but I'd actually be prone to hiding like the disciples. Now, this week I was, um, I was listening to the Armchair Experts podcast. Um, Dax Shepard um, had a woman by the name of Anna Lemke on who um, recently wrote a book called Dopamine Nation. And I started actually reading the book. Um, it's really fascinating so far. She's trying to understand uh, new discoveries in neuroscience and addiction and medication, the relationship between pleasure and pain, and really trying to understand the release of dopamine in our bodies. And this is what she writes in her book. She says, we've transformed the world from a place of scarcity to a place of overwhelming abundance. Thumbs up, right? Drugs, food, news, gambling, shopping, gaming, texting, sexting, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, tweeting, the increased numbers, variety, and potency of highly rewarding stimuli today is staggering. The smartphone is the modern-day hypodermic needle delivering digital dopamine 24-7 for a wired generation. If you haven't met your drug of choice yet, it's coming to a website near you. And I want us to see this because I'm actually, I'm actually really, I don't want to, I'm not here to judge your character, your behavior. That's actually not the point of what I, what I want to make here. What I think I'm hoping to expose with this idea of exposing these behaviors is what do we leverage to cope and hide? What do we leverage to cope with this world and hide? Uh, recently, I was getting into the um, elevator with my daughter, and I pressed the button, and she said, Daddy, when we get into the elevator, do not be on your phone, okay? And I was like, oh, okay. And I started laughing a little bit, but then I realized this compulsive behavior I have to pull out my phone when I get in the elevator to check what? Nothing, right? And she notices my behavior of compulsion and hiding. And I just have to wonder, what if these little hits, right? These little simple gratifications, what they actually do is replace our enchantment, right? Living our life through a three-by-five screen where our story is unfolding, where, or maybe it's not unfolding, but actually we're understanding somebody else's story, but we're actually not enchanted because we're not living outside of that story. And maybe in a very real way this morning, that's where the resurrection story meets you. The resurrection meets you in a sort of hiding like these disciples, coping behaviors from the world. 
It's like what, what's happening with the resurrection is like there's this big grand story being told of what God has done, and th- there's an invitation into said story, and it's just going over our heads because we're not paying attention. And honestly, if we were to just take that like one step further, if I could poke just like a little bit more, is there's like actually a simple substitution at work. You and I have substituted the self for God. Like that is the, the behavior, that's the pattern, is that we've substituted ourselves for God, consumed with connection and affirmation from other people and work and the project and the deadlines. And hopefully on Resurrection Sunday, we could actually be drawn out of that a little bit to say, wow, maybe there is a bigger story at work outside of myself. How much of your life is lived in distraction? No longer even asking questions of enchantment. And that was Jesus's seeking out of the first disciples in fear and hiding. And what does he say to them? Not what are you doing? Not what, why haven't you guys been out doing what we've talked about? But he simply says, peace be with you. He's so kind. And so we miss the unfolding right in front of us, but it's not just fear and hiding at work. Then we get to Thomas, right? Thomas is famously known as doubting Thomas, right? And when you read this, he gets sort of a bad rap, but now you get the other end of it and you're like, whoa, the other disciples are hiding. At least, you know, it, it's, it's kind of the same thing in a lot of ways. The other disciples are doing pretty much the same thing as Thomas. But why is Thomas off by himself, right? What, what is that isolation? Why is he being pessimistic and negative? And I had kind of thought, I don't, I don't, I don't know how far this will go, but what if he's grieving, Like, what if Thomas is grieving? He just lost Jesus, his mentor. Maybe the reason he's off by himself is because the dream died for him too. I've been following this guy. I've been giving my life. I've been giving my time to this guy. And what do the disciples come to him and say? This is like such like a friend thing to come and say, Thomas, you missed it. We saw the risen Christ. And what we learn in the text is that Thomas is a true skeptic. He wants the the tangible truth, right? He wants not only to see, but to touch. Here's what verse 25 says. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the, the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Seems kind of reasonable to me in some ways. Like I read it and I'm like, okay, yeah, I'd actually want, I'd actually want the same thing. But also I read it and I thought, what a weirdo. Like, why would you want to put your hand in there? Like, don't do that, man. Uh, this is a picture from, um, I think it's the 1600s. I, I'm, not, I'm not like an art history buff or anything. It's Caravaggio. And one of the things that was really fascinating, if you look really, really close, um, the artist actually put um, dirt in the fingernails uh, of Thomas. And I thought even more, like, that's even grosser. Like, don't touch me with your dirty hands, you know? I will not believe. I want to stick my fingers in there, right? It's a beautiful depiction, but you know one of the things I found so interesting this week is when you read the text over, it never says that Thomas touched Jesus. It never says that he even needed that level of evidence. Once he came around, he, was, he simply responded, my Lord and my God, doubting Thomas. The original word for doubt in the Greek is that he chose doubt. Like, he deliberately chose not to believe. And to me, he could have asked more questions, right? They come and say, we've seen the risen Christ. We could have said, okay, 
Where is he? Let me, let me see him. But he doesn't do that. He's actually settled in his unbelief and in his doubt. And this is what the text is actually trying to communicate to us. The text is trying to communicate, Thomas doesn't want to believe. He's already firmly decided, I don't want to believe. I'm a doubter. And for some of you, when you think about the idea of doubt, um, doubt comes in a very real form to you because of suffering that you faced in this world, like losing someone you love or tragedy happening to you or to someone around you. And what happens? Doubt seeps in and takes over. And I just to be honest, that's real. Like that, that's, that's valid. That's a valid reason to doubt, to, to ask the question, how could God be good if this happened? That can be a pathway to doubt in our time. Or what about for some of us, the doubt isn't even like intellectual or um, even theological, but the doubt is actually relational. We doubt because of this broken thing called the church. And we're like, I, I don't, the church is just so messed up. The church leaders are flawed. I came to church and I expected that it was going to be a place of healing and peace and wholeness. And you know what I got in return? I got rules, condemnation, and isolation. I found more brokenness when I walked into the church. And, and I'm going I'm to tell you too, this is real. And as a pastor, I'm sorry because the church is supposed to be a place of beauty and healing. It's supposed to be a place where people actually run into Jesus and meet him and find that he is good. And oftentimes for people, it's, it's not. And that can be a pathway to doubt. And that's real. Or I think for some people, doubt is a sort of intellectual wrestling, but then it just reach, reaches a, a point to where it's a, just a full-on choice. It starts intellectual, but after a while, there's just this sort of slow drift, right? You look back in your life and you say, well, I had moments where I was faithful in prayer, I was in community group, and like I was going to church and I really cared, but then there's just this slow drift away. The work pressures stack up. Sunday mornings are really nice to sleep in, all right? And just a hundred small ways, we just drift, right? And this is actually what a skeptic is, right? A skeptic is someone who says, I'm going to reserve judgment. I'm not going to fully commit to something until the demand for sufficient evidence has been given. And to me, that sounds valid, but at the same time, what is at the heart of doubt? What is at the heart of the doubt that you're experiencing? And a lot of times I think what's at the heart of doubt is fear. It's fear. It's the fear of being hurt or disappointed where, where um, a skeptic would say, I'm going to stand on the sideline as to not risk more disappointment. I don't want to uh, risk looking or feeling stupid, and so I'm going to stand on the sidelines. And I actually wonder, is that why Thomas is alone? Is that why Thomas is isolated? He's by himself. Maybe he's thinking, I'm actually rational. I'm subjective. I'm going to go think about this. But actually what's going on is he just doesn't want to be wrong. And I think for some of us, the truth about doubt is, for some of us, um, we've been hurt so deeply. Like we know the story of like having our heart broken. And so the walls are up. And we'd say, you know what? I, I cannot put myself in a position to be hurt like that again. It doesn't seem safe or wise for me to do that. And what we actually find there is a, a sense of despair. Uh, Ronald Rollheiser is a Catholic theologian, and here's what he says. He says, despair is the death of our sense of surprise. That was worth everything you came here today, right there, that sentence. Despair is the death of our sense of surprise. The belief that nothing new can happen to us 
We despair at the precise moment when consciously or unconsciously we say in resignation, that is the way I am. That is the way things have always been for me. This is the way things will always be. I know what's possible. For me, it's too late. Once this has been said, we are in a tomb and much of us is dead and more of us is still dying. Despair is when we can no longer be enchanted when we can no longer be surprised by hope again. I don't know if you've ever actually like said that in, in your life, one of those things. Like, this is just the way things will always be. Resurrection says that is not the way it always be. Ronald Rollheiser finishes like this. He says, why is this despair? Why is it so dangerous? Because the resurrection is always like it was the first time, a surprise, the totally unexpected, the impossible, that which defies all logic, the laws of nature and the wisdom of common sense and convention. It despises all of those things. Despair has led him to doubt. I will not believe. I believed in him once and he died. But then resurrection comes. And what we find in this passage is so beautiful. It's that Jesus loves us through locked doors. Jesus loves us through locked doors when we're closed off to him, when we're hiding, when we're afraid, when we have doubt. Jesus pushes in. And here's my guess. Whatever it is that you believe, you like Jesus, all right? This is like not a very PC thing to not like Jesus, right? And I think we read the Gospels and we say, wow, um, high character, wisdom, charisma. He walks around healing the sick and telling people to give their money away and gives sight to the blind and helps people um, cast demons out and he fights, off, uh, fights for justice for the oppressed. He does all of these things. He, he pushes back on the religious elite of the day. And for some of us, we see this and we say, I can get around this, right? Jesus is a teacher, the social reformer, a peacemaker, a man for the underdog. We can get around this Jesus, but then, then another claim comes, right? Because that Jesus was resurrected. And the resurrection means that Jesus matters all the way, or he doesn't actually matter at all. And you and I might be prone to looking at him and saying, well, I really like the wisdom of Jesus or the, the way he's a peacemaker or a social reformer. But the problem is, is Jesus actually claims that he's more than those things. And that's the doubt that we actually have to step through, a level of enchantment that we actually have to push into because the resurrection is making the claim that Jesus is God. And if the story is true, it changes everything. Jesus goes from someone you and I like to someone who's asking us of something. And the ask is to follow him or to believe in him. And what that does is it does free you from the need to be your own God, but it also asks you to give your life away for other people. And here, I, wanna, I just want to show us with the rest of our time what Jesus is doing in his humanity, how he's um, tearing apart a dichotomy between heaven and earth. I was recently on a Zoom call, and um, we were talking about, it was like a very silly conversation that we were having, and we had to vote in the chat on um, who church is for, and it was like, this group or this group? And like, I put both in the chat. And they're like, no, Russell, choose one or the other. And I was like, no, both. And I was like feeling a little saucy that day or whatever. And they're like, hey, why don't you unmute and tell us why, like everyone else has answered the question, but you haven't. And I was like, okay, I mean, I, I guess I'm, I'm fine to do this. And I was like, why are you, why are we trying to dichotomize everything? Why are we trying to, to polarize everything and put them in two camps? I'm like, what if the answer really is both? 
And like in silly and small ways we do this, like tea or coffee, cats or dogs, blue text, green text, right? Like Team Jacob, Team Edward. Like I don't know, like we just like dichotomize everything. There you go. See, this is like, what is that, like mid-2000s? Like, I don't know. What, What the gospel writers are trying to do is say, hey, you live in a dichotomy where heaven and earth are separate, but in the person and resurrection of Jesus, they're being brought together. And, and see this really well in, in John, uh, in verse 19 and verse 26. It says, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And then in verse 26, it says, eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And I read this so many times and I thought, Jesus, why not just knock, you know? Like, why not just knock on the door? But what this shows us in a really simple way is Jesus is physical, right? Touch me, feel me, um, put, your, put your hands in the wounds on my body. And yet, in a spiritual sense, what is he doing? He shows up through the, through the wall, right? It's like, Jesus, why not just do one or the other? But these sentences both actually show us the uh, congruence of heaven and earth. See, we are prone to think of this dichotomy between heaven and earth. Here's a picture, right? They're two separate spheres, right? Heaven is God's dwelling. It's the soul. It's spiritual. It's sacred. It's good. It's the, the place we go when we die. Like, that's how we think about heaven, right? It's a full of God's presence and justice and goodness and beauty. And then earth is the other thing, right? It's our dwelling. It's body. It's tangible. It's secular. It's sort of to be enjoyed, but it's like not our long-term place. And injustice happens there. And then in the person of Jesus, it's just thrown up into an upheaval. Like Jesus shows up and people are healed of their sickness. People are forgive, forgiven of their sins. And what he's basically doing is he's basically creating little outposts of heaven on earth. And what actually happens is these things come together. And in a Venn diagram, apparently, right? They come together. Heaven and earth are coming together. And I think about this, this idea of it coming together, and there's sort of a tension in me. Like, we're supposed to long for heaven, but I kind of like earth right? Like, have you guys ever eaten a Levain cookie? Like, earth is, is not the worst place ever, right? And for you, you're probably not here because, wow, you're really curious this morning what happens when you die. Like, that was not it. That was never on your mind this morning, right? But you know what was on your mind? Like, what does this week have for me? What, I need to go to the grocery store. You're uh, dealing very much so with the things of earth, Right? And resurrection is saying that these two things are actually overlapping now. So many churches are obsessed with getting people into heaven. Jesus is walking around earth obsessed with bringing heaven to earth. It's totally different. What is he praying? Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. He's teaching us how to pray. He says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right? He's saying, I'm actually trying to bring these things into congruence. I'm actually, um, I want to blur the lines a little bit. In fact, heaven is in motion, earth is in motion. They're coming together. They're inching closer to one another. And what resurrection is, is it's a glimpse of the kingdom of God. It happened and it's happening. The glimpse of God. Uh, does anybody know what the overlap of the Venn diagram is called? Anybody? The middle part? 
<laughs> no, it's not. Well, that may be. I don't know. But there's actually an Italian word for this, and it's called a mandorla. And anybody speak Italian? Mandorla is the word for almond. It's very, very deep here. But actually, in, um, in ancient art, that, um, that overlap, that sort of almond shape, they would actually use that um, as a framing for Jesus or the Virgin Mary in ancient art. And they would actually place Jesus in there as a way of saying, heaven and earth are overlapped, and the thing that overlaps them is the person and the work of Jesus. And so, what does it mean? It means that actually we see the glimpses of the resurrection and the here and the now. We're not just here celebrating something that's done. We are celebrating that, but we're actually celebrating something that's ongoing, the hope of heaven showing up in our midst, justice and love and peace and forgiveness. Like Forgiveness can be found on earth because Jesus poked through in time and space and made it possible. And like, I know you and I are consumed with like the 24-hour news cycle and all week like uh, going through like the news and on the phone and we're seeing like war and fear of global war, nuclear war. We're seeing this, thi- this, um, this atrocity on the train and the trauma that that brings. I don't know about you, but I got on the train this week and I'm like looking around. It's not easy, right? There's an uneasiness and anxiety and a depression. And I'm like, I need some hope. I need some resurrection hope that actually God cares and he's breaking through. And the resurrection says he is. N.T. Wright says this, the message of the resurrection is that this world matters. The injustices and pains of the present world will now be addressed with the news that healing and justice and love have won. But if Jesus Christ is truly risen from the dead, Christianity becomes good news for the whole world. News which warms our hearts precisely because it isn't just about warming hearts. Easter means that in a world where injustice, violence, and degradation are endemic, God is not prepared to tolerate such things. God cares. When a black man fears for his life when he's pulled over or in horror is killed, God cares. When atrocities happen on the train and people are harmed, you and I are traumatized, God cares. Whatever you brought here today, God cares, and I want you to know that. Resurrection screams God cares. Jesus is not a detached God, but he's very much so in our midst. And for the joy set before him, he endured pain and suffering so that you and I could come and be together, gather together and worship because he is a great and compassionate God. But let me say one more thing. It's not just that God cares for us uh, individually, but it's that as a community, we join God in that restoration and renewal. We actually join God in his resurrection life. And so we can actually say that the resurrection of Jesus comes with an invitation and a command for us. We always say that reunion is a church seeking the good of our city, and we want to be a part of that. We want to join God as he does renewal, healing, and justice in our city. And that's why we do things like hang out with the Youth Justice Network and figure out how to partner with them. And that's why we want to be serving in the East Village, trying to figure out how to um, provide food for our hungry neighbors. And even, even more than that, when I look around this room, I actually see a group of people who, who want to do this in their day-to-day, who want to give their life away for this type of work. It's a very long poem um, by Wendell Berry, but he ends the poem simply by saying, practice resurrection. And I love that idea that we could be people that are practicing resurrection, but we actually do that when we raise money for nonprofits and NGOs. And we actually practice resurrection when we pray 
And we practice resurrection when we teach and we raise children and when we design and construct buildings and bike lanes and when we create beauty through writing and dancing and filmmaking and editing and when we go to class to learn economics and filmmaking and criminal justice, when we sort data, when we march for justice, when we advocate for the marginalized, the poor, the sick, and the least of these, what we're actually doing is we're practicing resurrection life where where heaven and earth are actually overlapping. And what are we doing? We're bringing a little bit of heaven to earth, and it's so needed. And all of those things that I mentioned are things that people in this community are already doing. And so let's multiply that. That's the invitation to practice resurrection. So what about you? Here's the last thing. Here's here's what Jesus says. He says, do not disbelieve, but believe. And so maybe you came here this morning, and to be honest, you're not looking for anything. Like, Jesus is very much so not on your uh, radar. Um, maybe you're enchanted. Maybe you, you lack a sense of enchantment. But maybe today something is just enticing you. Heaven and earth coming together, the elements of the kingdom of God, justice for our neighbors. But the truth is, is we're all longing, we're all looking for something. And so maybe you're sitting here even, even debating me in your mind. You're like, come on, man. Like, resurrection. Like you cannot actually believe that the best answer to the human condition is that um, a a man rose, uh, died, and then rose 200 years ago. But I would just ask you this morning, what are you enchanted by? What brings life in you? What stirs? Maybe this morning the resurrection story meets you in the midst of doubt and wrestling. And I would just submit to you this morning that you're in good company. And I would, I would invite you to, to think about this. Do not disbelieve, but believed. Maybe you've been hurt by a church. Maybe uh, you've, you've had uh, uh, suffering come your way that seems unjust. How does that speak to you? Does it frustrate you? That's, what is it stirring in you? And then lastly, maybe the resurrection meets you today in a season of worry and anxiety. And that's real. And I'm glad you're here today. Because what you can hear today is Jesus, through locked doors, shows up and says, peace be with you. And I hope that peace would actually be with you today. Um, at the end of service, our friend Siona is going to be over here in the corner. would love to pray for you, with you, whatever you're going through. You can share as much or as little um, as you'd like with her. But to receive prayer, to know that peace could be yours.